0: words on water
1: words on water welcome to take it from the top a podcast series that offers nuggets of wisdom from past presidents of WEF and other notable leaders in the water sector to help you navigate your way through the challenges of today. I am Tom Kunich, your host, and today my...
0: I'm sorry, everyone. We interrupt this regular programming Tom Kunitz himself is a former WEF president, and it's time to interview him. I'm Travis Loop, the regular host of Words on Water. Tom, we all know you've got a tremendous amount of perspective and wisdom, so we need to turn the tables here and interview you for this episode.
1: (laughs) Well, Travis, (laughs) um, okay, well, I'm going to have to uh, see if I can uh, regroup here and uh, meet your very high standards.
0: Well we're gonna we'll start off then in uh, an area that's one of your strengths and fits this uh, this turning of the tables and that's comedy and improv. Uh, you've got an extensive background in that area, so it's time to draw on that skill set i'll I'll keep the first question pretty simple then. What is your background in comedy? <laughs> well, you know. It could be, you could talk about this is my whole life here. I, I, growing
1: up, I always was a, a bit of a goofball, and, and that's putting it politely. Um, but then I started to get more into more organized comedy. I went to Penn State University, and there I became a writer for our campus humor magazine called the Penn State Froth, and then eventually became the editor of the magazine. Um, so I was doing comedy writing, and then from there, uh, when I moved to Chicago, I started taking acting classes and uh, classes in improvisation at a place called the Second City in Chicago, which you may have heard of as a place where a lot of famous comedians have come out of there. And just over time, kept expanding my, uh, my artistic reach there. I uh, became a playwright. I have produced uh, eight plays that I've written, uh, a director. I've directed uh, numerous sketch comedy shows, musicals, um, um, stage plays, and for the last 20-some years, been uh, a teacher at uh, the Second City, teaching improvisation comedy and sketch
0: comedy writing. The one thing that I, I really like about you is how you have brought that background into your professional life. Um, and I'd really love to hear a little bit more about how improv skills, in particular, are useful in the workplace.
1: Sure. You know, a lot of folks maybe think that improvisation is, is what they see on television, this, the TV show, for example, Whose Line Is It Anyway? And that's about being a cut up and, and just having a funny line. But, but really, at its essence, what improvisation is, is there are skills like listening, focus, collaboration, communication, creativity. And when you think about it, these skills, these are life skills. These are not just skills for the stage and entertaining people. These really are life skills that you can apply in in, in all of your walks of life. And so these concepts that, that we teach are really all based ultimately in, in what we call the partnership. Okay. Some folks think that improv is about stand-up comedy, but it's not. Stand-up is one person by herself or himself on the stage with the you know, scripted bit. But improvisation is based on the ensemble, working together with others. So it's really all based in cooperation collaboration and and that creativity that comes when you work with another person so you know practically all of us in our daily jobs do work with other people and these same skills come into to play you know it's about truly listening when another person is talking if you're at a a meeting or on a video call or in the conference room are you truly listening to what the other person is saying are you getting ready to put your own idea out there as soon as you get a break, right? Building on other people's ideas, that's improvisation is all about the building, taking the idea that was given to you and build on it, what we call the yes anding part. And that's the collaboration thing. And then also that unlocking of that potential, the creativity that you have within you to to solve problems, which practically all of us, you know, are problem solvers in our jobs, and it takes creativity to, to solve those problems. So that's that's how I bring those those skills from the improv world into the workplace.
0: Wow, I really love that point you made about uh, truly listening and then building off of what somebody's saying instead of. What I think so many of us are guilty of and that's just waiting to kind of jump in and put your thoughts in the mix and it's not really a continuous conversation in the same way that that you've described. Um, Also, what I really like is how you've specifically taken improv and brought it into the water sector. Through some through some trainings and instructions and lessons for people, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you've done that and what you think that has uh, taught some of the people in the water sector. Uh,
1: sure. So you know, a few years ago uh, at Weftech, uh, I did some workshops during the the workshop weekend on using improv skills in the workplace, and. Uh, I've had people who've come back to me after that and says, hey, I took that thing that, that you explained, that yes anding thing. And I've used that in in, in, um, in, in the workplace and, and bringing it to meetings where we say, well, let's build on each other's ideas instead of saying, no, but, no, but. Um, I've also had uh, uh, the experiences where it's the creativity part and problem solving is looking beyond the obvious. And how do you do that? How do you do uh, what we call the, an improv, exploration, discovering, heightening, which are the building blocks of improv and and how do you explore those different ways of looking at something? Some other things that I've taught uh, uh, oftentimes going to uh, member association meetings. Maybe the the young professionals group will ask me to come and chat with the the folks there. One of the big things that uh, young professionals, well, frankly, a lot of people are scared of and that's giving public presentations. And I'll tell you, I wasn't always able to comfortably give public presentations. I wasn't born like this. Uh, I really worked hard at it, but those improv skills and the acting skills went a long way to helping me be more comfortable with those. So I teach those same type of skills in workshops on how to give presentations, even technical presentations. It's not about the comedy behind it, but how to give the message, how to tell your story. Mm. And I've also had some member associations invite me there to to their uh, leadership groups and teach some workshops on, on that creativity and finding that creativity within and then applying it, they apply that when they're developing their strategic plan so that they can think beyond uh, the, the normal, think beyond the usual. Um, so wherever, whatever subject, doesn't matter what you're asking me to speak about, I'm always using my improv skills because when I'm speaking, I want to create that sense of audience engagement, invite the audience in, invite the audience to the party and have this participatory learning approach. There's this old uh, Chinese saying, which. Uh, uh, basically, interpreted says, "Tell me, I forget. Show me, I remember. Include me, I learn." And that's my my approach to to teaching or presentations is that inclusion part where I think that folks are really going to learn.
0: Well, let me uh, let me ask you something uh, about like pre stage, pre presentation, pre speech jitters. I think you know even people that have done a lot of this kind of performance or whatever it is, or speaking still m- get some anxiety before beforehand. So, you know, for me, I've done a couple hundred podcast interviews and I still get a little nervous before I'm gonna interview somebody or before I speak in front of a crowd. Do you have any, any advice uh, from your, all your background in improv and acting and comedy that, to give to people about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, you've probably also heard this uh, piece of advice where they say always uh, uh, think about the audience as being naked, and then that will (laughs) calm you down. So I I think that that's probably a little passe. So instead, what I do is I ask one person that I know to actually sit in the front row and be naked, and that (laughs) helps me. That helps me calm down.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, that'll do it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll tell you, uh, um, a good, here's a, that's a really great question. And the nervousness is a good thing because it's it's energy. It means that you're excited and that you have that energy. So it's actually a good thing to be a little bit nervous before before one goes on. Now, we don't want to be at the point where you're in the bathroom throwing up. That's, mm-hmm. that's gone too far. But just being aware and accepting and saying, this butterfly in my stomach is OK. It's a good thing. It's supposed to be there. And then the next tip that I give people is this. Memorize and know exactly what you're going to say when you step out there on the stage. Have that first paragraph or that first Mm. introductory mark memorized, ready to go. You don't even have to look at your notes because what will happen is as 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 soon as you start saying these things, it will calm you down because you're saying, oh, I got this. I can do this. I'm fine. And all of those demons in your head will start to dissipate. And then you can, you've got the momentum to get, start moving into your presentation.
0: Mm, great, great advice. Uh, not the person actually sitting naked part, but the, uh, <laughs> the butterflies being normal. And set yourself up to succeed with that, that opening little bit there. Great stuff. Well, Tom, from, from knowing you for a, a number of years now, the other thing I've, I've heard you talk about, a lot about and, and I, I know that you enjoy has been uh, travel. And you've extensively traveled around the world, had a lot of great adventures and trips. Um, and I'd really love to hear what you've learned from all of that travel.
1: Well, uh, yes, as uh, I've been to at this point fifty countries outside the United States. Wow! And um, you know, one thing that when folks travel outside the U.S., sometimes just even outside their own state, the, the thing that comes to us first is always what's different. You say, "Wow, that's different than back home." What's different in this country? They dress differently, they speak differently, they, they drive on the different side of the road. But I also try to look for what's similar. What are the things that are that we share in common? What are the similarities between um, our, our cultures? And, and it's also start to recognize that some of the things that we think of universal truths, like, well, everybody around the world all think this way. Not all of those things that a person or myself might say is a universal truth really are many of the things are cultural truths, which means that my culture tells me that this is the way to think. And somebody else's culture is going to tell them that is the way for them to think. And just as an example, for for example, we might think in our culture that, hey, when a person wants to get married, they have a right to choose the person that, that they want to marry. And another culture would say, the best way to get married is an arranged marriage, because who knows better what a young person wants, than their parents who have known them their entire lives. And they arrange myself, how can you ever choose a a mate for yourself, choose a partner for yourself for crying out loud, you don't know what to do, let it up to the parent. So there's no truism there. It's really a a cultural thing. And and that's what we we want to, to be aware that 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 how much culture drives And another person's not wrong, or I'm not right. But to know that our culture drove us to this point. and, And the culture, you could say, well, maybe times have to change. And that's fine. But be aware of what is really uh, a universal versus what is driven by our environment and, and the culture that we have. You know, another thing that I learned uh, just moving on to another aspect of this is and tying the water part into this mm. is how much is water, you know, valued around the world? I traveled for five weeks in China in 1990. Now, remember, this is a time before the Internet, before we had laptops and, and, and cell phones and so on. So travel there was a lot more ch- challenging than it is now. Well, one of the things that I noticed is how much water was not valued in that country. Now I can't say that the, the same now, things of course have been uh, modernizing and changing, but I saw rivers that were so polluted, you could almost walk on them. Mm. And the water was so dirty that the, the people of the country themselves could not drink the water. Everything had, our every water had to be boiled. I had to be very, very careful to sanitize any utensils that I used or any, any type of food I touched. Okay, so the sense of water, as as the importance of it was was really not uh, on the forefront today i traveled to places like uh, um, south korea and singapore and japan indonesia and i see there that water is so much a part of their national policies okay which now we might say is even beyond advanced beyond what we see in, in, in the united states is that this that they they water sometimes in the US becomes an afterthought is, oh yeah, how are we gonna get water there? How are we gonna treat the wastewater, right? It's an afterthought, oh, it's a problem. Whereas in parts of Southeast Asia, it is it is part of the policy they start with the water and then build the development around that. Um, and you can see places like uh, Singapore, which is becoming self-sufficient in its water for, for decades, had to buy its water via pipeline from Malaysia. And now it's saying, it's so important for our independence to create our own supply of fresh water. So so those are some of the things that I noticed, the, the, the different approaches in saying how important is water that we're even gonna make it part of our national policies.
0: That's very amazing to see those countries weave it that closely into their policy, make it foundational and then build everything off of that. Right. I heard, I heard a story just recently that I found so interesting about Nelson Mandela. And when he came into the presidency in South Africa, he appointed a human rights attorney to be the water minister, and the reason was to make sure that the importance of water to, to as a basic human right, as part of people's lives, as the foundation for everything. You know, put this person in that position to then build out the policy accordingly. I thought that was an amazing, amazing move by him.
1: That is, and and, and just to add on to that, I was at a conference in Sri Lanka. And one of the things they talk about, and we start with saying, yes, water is a human right and so on, is then to recognize the gender part of this, which, which I didn't really think of coming from North America, but the, the women saying, but you have to include us in your decision-making, because if you don't, all these little things that you don't think about that, that women need, whether it has to do with raising children or, or the, the, the health and hygiene, you, know, if you don't count for those things, then, then you're not taking care of those needs. And, and those women, it, it, it affects the going to school, affects their education, affecting their future, affecting their home life. And so, yeah, including the right people in there that think about it beyond the technical side, how imperative that is.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> the idea of wasting water leads me to the next thing I wanted to, to ask you about, and that's about resource recovery when it comes to water. Okay, we're not just gonna waste this resource. Um, why are you such a supporter of, of resource recovery? And what does that mean in, in terms of water?
1: Well, you know, Travis, maybe I'll start off with a little story to, to tell you how that, you know, I came to be thinking about this. Uh, you know, when I was a, a young boy growing up, I was asking my father about his childhood, what was, what was his life like when he was my age? And now my father grew up during the great depression in a little, little coal town in Pennsylvania. And um, so I was asking about his daily life and, you know, like, you know, did you have your own bedroom? My goodness, no, there's 11 children in the family. <laughs> he shared a bed with three sisters. So four of them in one bed and he wore hand-me-down clothes from his sisters until he was a, you know, growing boy. He was wearing dresses and so on, because they had to right, reuse the clothing. Um, and then I asked him about like, you know, your chores, what are your daily chores? He had to get up like four in the morning and walk down the railroad tracks looking for pieces of coal that fell off the train cars in order just to heat the, the, the house for the day. And then I asked him, I said, Did you have to take out the trash? And he said, Hmm, we didn't have any trash. I said, Dad, how can you not have trash? And he said, Let me think here. He said, Well, any food that we had, we ate, we were hungry. But if there was a, you know, eggshells or banana peels or whatever, it went into the compost heap to make compost for the garden, because they grew their own food. And he said, Well, if there was any paper, we used it as much as we could. And then it went into the fireplace for for heat. We had any metal cans. My father opened up the cans and used it to shingle the, the house or the chicken coop. If we had glass, we reused it as jars for canning. There really were no plastics in the time. Anything that broke, we fixed. He said, the only trash we had was ash from the, from the coal stove. And he said, every day I would take that and throw that out into the street, but that's what made the street. Everybody did, it, and our street was made out of coal ash. Mm. So really there, there was no you know uh, uh, waste. And, and I think about that, we, we call this resource recovery today, and they were practicing resource recovery back then, but they didn't call it resource recovery. They called it survival. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think it's so important to us is that we put a nice name on it, but ultimately it is about survival. Because when our resources are gone, as Benjamin Franklin says, you, you, you know the value of water once the well is dry, once your resources are gone, you know, this, is what, this is what people go to war over. This is what we, we people start losing resources. So if that's why it brought to me the, the concept of the preciousness of, of these resources that we have. And so we talk about resource recovering the water sector. Of course, you know, we know many of these things like um, the uh, uh, pulling out the nutrients of phosphorus and nitrogen, uh, like Chicago is doing and, and creating fertilizer out of that or gathering the, the, the biogas that comes off of digesters and using that to produce electricity um biosolids themselves what a tremendous resource that is so much better than commercial fertilizers it provides macronutrients micronutrients organic matter right the water itself is a resource in many parts of the country that water is a precious precious resource and so on so w- we think in the water sector that but then i also want folks in the water sector to realize this is just a piece of the bigger picture in our entire society It's not just those parts of the water sector that we need resource recovery. Think about all of the trash that goes into a person's trash bin. all everything going into a landfill. How much of that can be reused? And if I could end here just with a a quote from uh, a a fellow trustee uh, on the board of trustees, Raj Bhattarai, who coined this phrase back in the 1970, and he said, there is no such thing as a waste, just a resource out of place.
0: It's, that is so spot on, love that line. Great job, Arash. Uh, so we are seeing an uptake of these practices across the sector, right? We are seeing more water reuse, more nutrient recovery, more energy generation. But I, I think you know, you, you'd be the first one to say that we need to dramatically accelerate that, that pace of the practices. How can we do that?
1: Uh, Travis, it comes to this basic management concept, which is that, uh, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Or some other folks would say, if you want to manage it, you got to measure it. And that's the same thing with resource recovery, we have to measure it, and say how much of this are we doing, and then publicize it, let it be known that we are doing this. So others who are not say, oh, hey, I'm kind of falling behind here, I need to do this, so that the people who make decisions can put the funding into it and recognize the importance of this. So this is why WEF developed this program a few years ago called the renew program, R-E-N-E-W and the N-E-W stands for nutrients, energy, and water. You know, the basic components that we are recovering from, from the the used water. And then the concept behind this is to go out and measure it. All of these 15,000 wastewater facilities across the U.S. and then eventually into Canada and to say, we're going to all use the same system for measuring with the same metric the same approach so that we're all doing everything on an apples by apples basis here and then publicize this so we can see from year to year how are we doing as an industry how are we doing as region how are we doing as individual utilities so it's used on an individual basis to say how can i do better next year and it's also as an industry industry rise to say where do we need to get to are we stalling out are we flatlining how can we get that, that incentivize us to get to the next level and use that to, you know, just like they talk about the, um, the, the ASCE report card on infrastructure, and everybody talks about a crumbling infrastructure because they've measured it and said, this is this is the, the, the pain that we have, and here's how much money we have to put into it. We have to do the same thing with, with our resource recovery to measure, publicize, and and to demonstrate the, the, the progress that's being made.
0: Absolutely. And I believe that there is uh, another call for data that will be taking place this summer uh, and uh, an update to kind of the status of the the renew goals or or benchmarks later this fall. So uh, folks should definitely keep an eye out for that, more measurement of what's happening.
1: Yeah, not only keep an eye out, Travis, but you've got to do it (laughs) when that call comes out and whether you work at a utility or you know somebody who works at a utility, you're a consultant for them, you've got to get in there and get this done. It's gonna take a little bit of effort. You know, if you've done it before, the first time takes a bit of effort, but after that, it becomes a lot of uh, repetition. You already have the data, whatever yeah. we're asking for in the Renew program is data you already uh, have, but how vital this is going to be
0: for pushing the sector forward. How did you initially get involved in WEF? Um, you know, you, you, again, rose to become WEF president. Uh, where did that journey start?
1: So it's funny, uh, <laughs> Travis, is I never in my life imagined myself becoming uh, the president of WEF. It was never something I had aspired to. And if you had told me at one time, I would have, have laughed at you. Um, <laughs> but it all starts every You know, journey starts with a single step. And my single step was uh, somebody who knew me said, hey, um, we have this opening on this committee and, and the program committee and uh, would love to have you come join us. And uh, my first reaction was a refusal and saying, no, because I'm not that smart. I'm really, <laughs> People on that committee are really bright. They're the top people. I'm just not that smart, you know? I'm not a James Bernard or Jeanette Brown here. Uh, but what they convinced me is that everybody has something to contribute. And you know, whatever little experiences I had were experiences that were going to be valuable. The other hesitation on my part was like, ah, that's extra work. Do I really want to put myself into that? But I got dragged into it, and I started to very hesitantly get uh, participate. And then I started to realize, you know, the work is not that much, and, and 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 in terms of the time, it's interesting when you commit yourself to something. The time it magically appears hmm. because you've committed yourself to it, and you will find the time. And so that that whole aspect of it very quickly went away. And the fact that um, it was so much work. I started to realize, ah, you know, I can pound this stuff out pretty quickly, you know, it's and being part of other people helping um, made it worthwhile. And 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 then the part about not being smart enough, I started to realize, hey, actually I do. I was surprised how much that I could contribute, that I did know and was able to, uh, you know, contribute. And um, that's really the important thing here is to get folks to know that everybody has something to contribute or as my father used to say nobody is completely useless they could always serve as a poor example <laughs> so so even if even if you feel you're useless you see you have some value yeah. <laughs> everybody yeah. has some value and something. so the most important thing is is, to, is personal outreach i know that we have these membership you know the drives mm. and so on to become members but you have to reach out and tap that person on the shoulder and convince them yes. You have value, you are needed, you are wanted. Please mm. come. And um, and I think that that's what spreads it. That's, that's how I got involved and that's how, and then from there, it was just one step to the next. Every time, you know, I got grabbed by the collar and pulled up and said, all right, Tom, you're gonna to be chair of the committee. What, no, I was kicking and screaming. And Tom, board of trustees, what, no. But, um, you know, every step I realized, no, I can do this, I can do this. And, and the whole process too was very good for me because being part of WEF, I was learning skills, mm. and I was developing professionally so much faster than I would if I, if I just stayed uh, working at, at my job.
0: Yeah, this is this is not just a, something where you're giving as a volunteer and as a member, right? Uh, it's It's actually something that you get a whole lot back uh, from from that giving it's a very much a two-way street
1: right? Oh my gosh yeah, you know you imagine if you go somewhere and they give you a big gift basket with all those little bars of soap and candy bars mm-hmm. and whatnot. but think of this as the WEF gift basket and what you're getting back is uh, uh, skills in speaking and you're getting back leadership skills and you're getting back uh, the ability to to uh, collaborate the ability to develop new ideas and problem solve but those are all those little gifts that you're getting in your WEF gift basket.
0: Sure. Well, after, you know, your several decades as a, as a WEF member, uh, you know, climbing, fully climbing the ladder to the top and so forth, what are, what's kind of your 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 biggest takeaways about WEF and the water workforce? <laughs> uh, I'll,
1: I'll tell you another story here, Travis, that, that I think sums up very well my, um, my impression of working in the water sector, this, uh, this whole WEF family. Uh, when I was president of WEF, and um, we had a, we always have a presidential reception, um, and in my hotel suite, and uh, my ho- my family came to to visit Chicago. So I have five brothers and sisters, plus a bunch of nieces and nephews, and they all came out there. And uh, you know the reception goes on to like one o'clock in the morning, and folks are gone, and we're sitting around the room there with all the um, you know the, the the napkins and everything, glasses laying around. And, kind of tired. And my sister looks at me and she says, Boy, you water people are a bunch of huggers. (laughs) (laughs) And I says, Yeah, you know, what do you mean? Of course we hug. Don't you? And Mm. she said, No, all my brothers and sisters who are all professionals, they all have their own professional associations and conferences that they go to. No, we don't hug. We don't hang out with people from competing and firms or, or you know competing consulting firms or whatever. We don't hang out and talk to them. We only stick with our own people. We don't mm. run up and hug people like you folks do. And then I realized how special that is that we have. And that and, and then in the essence, that wraps up and, and describes what it's like being in this sector. It's this wanting to reach out and hug those people. And that's we're we're going through terrible withdrawal right now over the past year, not being able to get together and hug each other. And and we are. We're a family, we are a community. And the people here who holds us together is our passion. And I'm not saying that other fields don't have this passion. You know, you may be around a group of uh, educators or teachers and they're, they're very passionate about education, but it is a rather special thing that we have the passion that we have about the water, about how important it is for our community. And you will find the people that are in WEF and people who serve in the water sector, are the first one's to volunteer out in their community whatever those things are, coaching softball teams or being in the choir or whatever, we are the first ones that go out there and volunteer there. That's that kind of commitment and passion and community that, that we have.
0: Through this conversation, you've given a lot of great perspective and information and advice from the, the experiences in comedy and your travels around the world and your work in water. So if you were to weave all of that together, Um, is there like an overarching philosophy that you've kind of come to adopt and, you know, keep at your core that you want to share with others?
1: Yes, it is this. We are all
0: connected.
1: Everybody, not just the water sector, we're all connected. Everybody in the country is connected. Everybody in the world is connected. And we in the world are all connected to our planet. There's all this connection. And, And to believe in any way, that we are somehow isolated or individuals is, is just a fallacy, it's a farce. Mm. We are connected. There's a really good uh, um, thought behind that. There's a fellow named Sadesh Kumar from Rajasthan, India. And he wrote a book and they, the subtitle of the book was this, a declaration of dependence. And mm. And it really turns it on the, the head, this, this common belief, and particularly in our culture that, that this individualism is is the way to be, you know, I'm very strong on my own. And he turns it on his head and says, I declare I am dependent on others. And at first, it sounds like a place of, of weakness, but really, it comes from a place of strength to be able to say, I depend on others, and others depend on me. And it comes from a place of strength, recognizing responsibility, I have a responsibility to others. And to recognize that I have an impact on others because we are all connected. And we have to be conscious of that fact and be considerate of the fact that things that I do are going to impact others. We don't like it when our neighbor does something that impacts us. We have to remember that we have to be considerate not to impact our neighbor. Mm. And very, you know, maybe one way to put this that's memorable is to say what happens in Mayberry matters in Madagascar.
0: Mm. (laughs) Yeah. We all live downstream, right? Uh, Yes. Of of another um, and upstream of another. Um, Fantastic. Well, Tom, I appreciate you letting me crash your podcast to interview you. Um, I, like I said, I knew that there was a wealth of perspective and, and information that we had to extract here and share with others. Um, we will get back to the regular scheduled programming for the next Take It From The Top. But in the meantime, I appreciate uh, you giving us this time. Thank you so much.
1: Travis, it was my pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for what you do for WEF.
0: Words water.